Amen. I would ask that we remain standing for the reading of Scripture this morning. Uh, we're taking a break from the exposition of uh, the Gospel of Mark this week and next week. Then we'll return back to the exposition uh, of Mark. But this morning we're in Revelation chapter 4. I want to read two passages of Scripture, one from Revelation 4 and then one from Revelation 5. So Revelation 4, verses 9 through 11, let us hear and attend to the Word of God. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the twenty-four elders fall down before Him who sit on the throne and worship Him who lives forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for You created all things, and by Your will they exist and were created. And now over to chapter 5, verses 6 through 10. And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne of the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb, as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into the earth. Then he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Now when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints." And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and you have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, and the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was ten thousand times ten thousands and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And we'll end our reading of the Holy Scriptures there this morning. Please be seated. King David, the prophet psalmist, sees by faith beyond the earthly creation and the mystery world of Jerusalem and the tabernacle of the Lord in his day, and he sees by the Holy Spirit's revelation to him by faith into the heavenly reality made known, as I said, by divine revelation. And he speaks to us across the ages, even here this morning, as he engages us by saying, who is this king of glory? Can you answer that? Do you know who the king of glory is that David is celebrating as he looks beyond Jerusalem and the earthly tabernacle, as he looks into heaven by faith? Beloved, if we know that that is the ascended and glorified Jesus Christ, it is by the same faith that we receive from the Holy Spirit that we see beyond this world and we see what the Holy Scriptures reveal to us of the glory of Christ now, I know that it's typical uh, or traditional on Palm Sunday to revisit the, the moving story of Jesus entering Jerusalem for the last time and beginning the Passion Week and that intense time of humiliation that he would undergo, ending with his death, or so the world would think, but also encompassing his resurrection. When we consider the Lord Jesus entering Jerusalem, it's often called the triumphal entry but historically, I think we see that as anticlimactic because Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey, not a massive war horse. And he comes in humility. As a matter of fact, before he even gets there, he, he slides off of the donkey 
and he crumbles into the dust in a, in a display that would probably make us uneasy because Jesus crumples in the dust there. He throws dust in the air and he can't even speak in whole sentences as he breaks up over his lament and his mourning and his crying over Jerusalem being unrepentant and of the murder that is facing him. He's not crying for himself. As he says, as, as a hen would gather her chicks under her wings, I have tried to gather you, but you would not. Now your house is left to you desolate, destroyed, and ruined. Jesus saw the destruction that was coming. He knew what was before him. And so the, the scene of Jesus coming into Jerusalem on the uh, last uh, week would be uncomfortable for us. And, and in many ways, it's even a parody in the eyes of the world. Here is the conqueror. Here is the king of the world. Here is the savior. And he's riding in a lowly, humiliated fashion, almost comical, his feet and toes dragging the ground on this little burrow or this little donkey. And then he gives such a display in that he wails and laments. So it is, in the eyes of the world, a parody. They don't see the Savior. They don't see the King of glory entering into the gates of heaven. We must see that by faith. So we turn to Revelation chapter 4. Here in Revelation chapter 4, we're given another vision in the cycle of seven that makes up the book of Revelation. And I know that it's very mysterious to us, and I, I know many people have gotten off base trying to bring the book of Revelation down to human terms and to, to just worldly events. That's not what the book of Revelation is about. Uh, I would like you to think of the book of Revelation as stretching out a slinky because the seven uh, visions that are given are interrelated. They're connected. Um, it's not a linear historical perspective of, of this is the end of the world. That's not what the word apocalypse means. The word apocalypse is taken from the Greek word that means revelation. This is the revelation of the glorified and ascended Jesus Christ. Where is Jesus? Who is the king of glory? What is he doing? This is what he's doing in heaven. We can't see it with our eyes. It's better and greater than what he did on earth. He told us that. I'm going to my Father. I'm returning. You'll do greater works than I have done. It's good for you that I'm going away. You don't understand that now, but you will. And so the apostles did come to understand it. And the apostle John was given this apocalypse, this revelation of where Jesus is and what he's doing. And as we look to the word, we're, we are transported to heaven to see where Jesus is and what he's doing. The first vision cycle was given to John revealing the... Uh, glorified, the, the, the resurrected, ascended, and glorified Jesus Christ as royal high priest in the heavenly holy place. Now you need to understand that this is the royal heavenly high priest. According to the order under the old covenant and in the tabernacle and in, and in the temple, there were two different lines. There was a line for high priests from the line of Aaron, and there was a line for kings from the line of Judah. And they were never to cross over. We have examples of, of uh, violations of that in the Old Testament. I don't have time to go into all of that this morning. However, there was given to us a mystery representative of one who was to come. His name is Melchizedek. He was a king priest of the Most High God. He's mysterious. He's so mysterious and wonderful that even uh, Abraham paid homage to him as a representative of Almighty God. The Lord Jesus has come in fulfillment of that. He is the royal priest king and he's entered into the palace of heaven but not just the palace the tabernacle the temple the worship place the presence of god in heaven 
That's what this revelation is about. The second vision cycle that begins here in chapter 4, John is given and through him is given to us revelation of the heavenly throne room. It emerges from the holy place because there's movement, movement from the holy place into the throne room that is the heavenly holy of holies. So there is a connection with what has gone on previously with that first cycle. As I told you, uh, when I said slinky, I don't know if everybody knows what a slinky is. I may be dating myself. But anyway, the connection, that these visions are connected. They're interrelated. They're interlocking. Uh, It's not just linear development. This is not about time on earth. In chapter 4 and verse 1, you'll see that that, uh, is given to John this this message. And you'll see in verse 1 of chapter 4, after these things, and then you'll see at the end of verse 4, must take place after this. Now, that's the exact same Greek phrase. And I want you to understand uh, something about it. I know we tend to read into it a time element, but really the time element is not primary there. What's primary is along with, at the same time, going along, connected to this. That's what uh, John is writing. Along with this, along with these things, connected to these things. And then I show you things which must take place along with these things. So I wish I could just get time out of your head. (laughs) And I wish I could get you to focus on this in terms of what's happening. Not the time, but rather that it's interconnected. Along with this. This is what is being revealed to John. So the reference is to the revelation that's given of the resurrected, ascended, and glorified Jesus Christ. And this, of course, is timeless. And it's in heaven. These are reflections of necessity. We need to think on these things. We need to be taken out of our time place. We need to look beyond ourselves. And we need to look at the big picture of the promises of God, of who Jesus is, where he is, and what he's doing, even on earth, through his church, his local churches that represent him. So John writes and says, I looked and behold, there's an intensity of focus. Along with these things, I looked and uh, and behold, he's he's focused, there's intent, uh, purpose, in what he's looking at. Uh, This goes along with chapter 1, where there we read, I was in spirit, John says, on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice. Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me, and having turned, I saw, again, an intent, uh, focused attention. That's what John is telling us. Uh, In chapter 1, we have John's introduction. Uh, Very probably, John's introduction was written after the cycle of visions was revealed to him. Uh, We don't often think of that. Again, we think in a linear way, we think that John just sat down and started writing chapter 1 and wrote through to the end. But as we study and as we look and and, uh, get a better grasp on uh, the book of Revelation, I think it is very fair and probable that John wrote this uh, introduction after the cycle of visions was revealed to him. I also want you to consider the, the revealing of the scroll Remember, the reference is to not a book like we have with pages, but to a scroll that was rolled up and that had seven seals. And I think this is really interesting, if I can get it across to you, is that here is the scroll of God, and God begins to roll it up from the end and seal it. And he rolls it some more, and he seals it. And, he, and so he rolls it up, and there are seven seals within the scroll. And so John beholds the scroll being given to the Lamb who un, unseals it. And he begins to unseal it by unrolling it and breaking each seal. You see, God has rolled it up. God has revealed from the end what begins. He knows the end from the beginning. 
And that's what He's giving us. That's what He's revealing to us. I know, my beloved children. I know, little lambs of God. I know what's going on. I'm not absent from you. I can tell you, like I prophesied throughout the ages, now I'm telling you, this is what's going on. This is where your Lord Jesus is. This is what I've prepared for you. This will infallibly come to pass. Not trying to figure it out in terms of human history, but rather in terms of the perspective of God in heaven, who He is, and what He is doing for the redemption of the world. So again, in verse 1 of chapter 4, Along with these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. Now John has already received revelations about uh, the glorified Jesus Christ and a door. Again, we need to connect Scripture with Scripture. So just previous to this, in in the previous chapter, what was revealed to John uh, in the message to the church in Philadelphia, See, I set before you an open door. And no one can shut it. What is Jesus saying there? He's saying, I open the door. I open the door of, the, of worship. I open the door of the gospel, the glad good tidings of who God is, how He is to be worshipped, and how we can be reconciled and have peace with Him. Jesus says, I open that door. And then on to the church of the Laodiceans in verse 20 of chapter 3. He says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. This is the glorified Lord Jesus. He says, I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come to him and dine with him and he with me. Now I know that this is often turned into an evangelistic text about uh, calling people to come to Jesus. But look specifically at how Jesus is calling. He says, We come to him through his church to dine with him. What has he given us to dine with him? The Lord's Supper. The means of grace. Jesus says, this is how you come into my house. This is how you come through the door that I have set open. You come through faith. And you commune and you dine with me in the table that I have prepared for you. Take this bread. Take this cup. And do it in remembrance of me. That's why we have the Lord's Supper often. Every other week. Because we want to be reminded that we come through the door of faith into heaven itself and the promises of the Lord Jesus to be with us beyond what we can see or sense with our uh, senses. But by faith, we take His Word and we believe His promise and we commune with our Savior in a wonderful and mysterious way that is not of human imagination. It's not of my words or incantations or or secret uh, magic words. It's openly displayed and it's a call of faith. Come through this door and I will dine with you. I am more real to you than this bread and this cup. Do you believe that by faith? I believe it. That's what's revealed to us here. That's what John has seen. And John goes on in verse 1 of chapter 4 to say that what he uh, looked at so intently, what was connected to what had already been revealed to him, is the first voice that I heard was like a trumpet. This goes back even to chapter 1 and verse 10 and the the voice that he heard. The first, the most important, the primary voice that I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me saying, Come up here and I will show you things which must take place along with these things. Not time. Unfortunately, the translation after is a little misleading to us. Not, Not that it's a bad translation, but we load it up with ideas and we miss the connection. What John is saying is it's connected together. It's interlocked. It goes together. It's consequential. You see, this is the consequence of Jesus going to heaven for us. And this is what is being revealed to John, and and it's being revealed to encourage us. The first voice is the most important voice. 
It's not time. It's not the the one that you heard before he heard other voices. No, it's the one that's most important. It's first in rank. It's previously the one that he heard and was identified as the glorified Jesus Christ, as the royal high priest. And John is bidden. He's invited to do what? In this vision, he's invited into heaven, into heavenly worship. And here there is a heavenly worship liturgy that is displayed and that he explains to us or at least recounts to us and describes to us. Once again, the after these things, the along with these things is not a secular time-bound reference. Where is John? Where is the scene? The scene is beyond time. The scene is in heaven. You know what Hebrews chapter 9 tells us? It was necessary that heaven be purged and the sins of our guilt or the, the guilt of our sins be purged in heaven with better offerings than what was done on earth. And that there's a greater reality of the temple in heaven, the holy place and the most holy place, and all of the furnishings that were represented. There's a greater reality in heaven than what was represented on earth. As a matter of fact, we're told that the things on earth were the shadows. That's hard for us to grasp, isn't it? Because we think, oh no, that that golden candelabra, the table of showbread overlaid with gold, the Ark of the Covenant with the wings of the cherubim, and and all of this magnificence in terms of the, the tapestry that was woven and was the curtain between the holy place and the most holy place, all that was going on there seems so real and is described to us in such detail. That's what real, the Bible says, no, that's not what's real. Those were shadows. They represent a greater reality, and the reality is in heaven. And so this is the mystery that is being revealed to us, that it was necessary for Christ to enter the heavenly holy of holies, not with the blood of bulls and goats, but with his own blood, once and for all, with the power. Nothing but the blood of Jesus can cleanse away our sin's guilt. Are you offended by the reference to the blood? Beloved, the reference to the blood is the reference to his death. He died in a real body. He had real blood like you and me. He wasn't a ghost. He wasn't a phantom. He wasn't a make-believe. And so the blood, as shocking as it is, is necessary because Jesus is priest and sacrifice in one. Here is a a quotation from one of the study books that I appreciate by um, Stephen Smalley. I'm not going to read it this morning. Uh, You can read it. I I don't want to belabor the the point, but I'd like for you to read that. Maybe you take the notes home and... Like I say to you, it's a to-go bag, so you can have a little extra meal sometime later today. Uh, but you could read that quote from uh, Smalley's book. It's an excellent study. But I want you to remember this. I want you to remember that the book of Revelation is divine apocalyptic, divine revelatory vision. It's something that we can't know of our own imagination. It's something we can't figure out with human ability or human skill or, or that kind of thing. It is something that is given to us by God. That's what the word mystery in Scripture really means. It means something we could not know, but that God makes known to us. Why do we know that baptism means what it means? Because we're told in Scripture. Why do we know that the Lord's Supper means what it means? Because we're told in Scripture. This is what it means. And so this is apocalyptic, revelatory vision. It's given to accommodate believers here on earth. We're in the local, the visible church. We are here real on earth. But we have not yet been resurrected or finally glorified. The things that are being made known to us that are are enjoyed beyond 
word. I mean, I can say that because it's what the Apostle Paul says. It's unspeakable. I can't even tell you the things that I beheld in, in heaven. And, and so the revelation is an accommodation to try to help us have a glimpse. I like to say it's like pulling the curtain back and giving us a peek inside of heaven to encourage us, to strengthen us. We're given figures and types and similes and analogies of earthly created things to tell us about the wonders of heaven. I actually had a student ask me one time, this was an RUF thing up at Vanderbilt, oh, I don't know, 30 years ago or whatever, and I remember a student asking me a question and answer time, um, I see all these pictures of like little cherub angels playing harps sitting on clouds. I think heaven's going to be boring. And my answer to that is read the book of Revelation. <laughs> it's not boring. You can't even begin. Eye has not seen, nor has mind conceived. It hasn't entered into the heart of man, the thing that God has in store for those who believe him. No, you think heaven's boring? You need to read the book of Revelation. But don't read it like some kind of newspaper unfolding of events of what's going to happen uh, in terms of human terms. Read it with the prayer, Lord, reveal to me heavenly truths, heavenly reality. Take me out of this world into the promised world of your worship and your glory. That's how you need to read the book of Revelation. There are some fearful things in the book of Revelation. There are some challenging things. I'm not going to pretend to tell you I know everything about it. I have some ideas, and, and the most consistent things I know is it's about the glories of the resurrected and glorified Jesus Christ. It's revealing to us who the great uh, royal high priest is. Uh, the visions of this heavenly worship liturgy in the heavenly holy of holies that opens up in chapter 4 is connected to and surpasses all the prophetic visions elsewhere in Scripture. Uh, we referenced Psalm 24 this morning. Lift up your heads, O ye gates, and be lifted up, you ancient doors, and the King of glory will come in. Who is the King of glory? This is the answer. Jesus is the King of glory. Jesus, resurrected, ascended, and glorified. Jesus in heaven. Jesus in the heavenly holy of holies. This is the King of glory. And so it goes beyond Isaiah and Ezekiel and Daniel. Jesus said during his earthly ministry that Isaiah or Abraham longed to see his day and he saw it and was glad. John writes that in the opening uh, chapters of Isaiah, of holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. His train filled the temple. You know what John writes and says? This is what um, Isaiah wrote when he beheld the glory of Christ before the incarnation. Powerful, powerful stuff. And Jesus said, Abraham longed to see my day and he saw it and was glad. How did he see it? He saw it by faith. So from Daniel and Ezekiel and Isaiah and uh, the various prophets and Zerubbabel, these various uh, servants of God who serve the Lord. Here we have in the book of Revelation the culmination and the greater unveiling. The opening vision of Jesus' ascended glory is of a royal high priest. If you go back to chapter 1 and, and read the description of how he's dressed. He's a royal high priest, greater than Melchizedek, in fulfillment of all the promises of the priest king. He's in the heavenly holy place among the golden lampstands. Remember how in the, the um, outer precinct of the uh, tabernacle or the temple was the holy place and the golden uh, candelabra was there and the altar of incense. These things were a part of the table of showbread, the separating veil between the holy place and the most holy place. 
So in the opening vision, this is the royal king priest, Jesus, in the heavenly holy place. He's among the golden lampstands holding the seven stars who are identified as seven uh, churches representing the visible church on earth in its perfections. Jesus is perfecting his church. There's more than seven local churches, but the, the revelation is about how Jesus is perfecting his local church, that his local church does represent and is connected to the reality of uh his church, his church triumphant, his church victorious. And the seven angel messengers, the seven angel messengers are his ministers that he's given to direct and to uh, proclaim his truth. So the context of Jesus' messages to the seven churches is about the priority of public worship by the sufficiency of the word of God and the means of grace. I don't want you to miss this. To each of these churches representing the perfection that Jesus will bring to his church, but in local visible churches that are a part of that mysterious union. To each of these churches, Jesus identifies himself relative to their works. Now that word works means public service or religious service or liturgy. This is what Jesus is focusing on. That he mediates and he he is the minister As the royal high priest in the heavenly holy place. The heavenly holy of holies. He opens the door to the worship of God. That's what we're engaged in. That's why I'm challenged and why I'm so exercised in preaching the scripture to you. That you not lose sight of what we are connected with and what we are doing. Scripture reveals that the book of Revelation opens it up to us. Jesus opens the door of worship. Jesus' messages to the seven churches are intended for local visible churches like us. Around the world, throughout time and history, local churches representing the true church of Jesus Christ, concluding the message to each one of these churches, Jesus says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So the message is for us, continuing in the visible and local church on earth. For what Jesus is doing in terms of the greater reality of the church triumphant and the church in heaven and of his perfecting and beautifying and purifying his bride. So the glorified Jesus charges the church to love worshiping God first. If you follow the messages of Jesus to the churches, it's a message for us to keep in all time and for all churches. We need to be reminded of this. Do we love worshiping God first? The glorified Jesus charges the church to remain faithful. Are we challenged to remain faithful to God? Do we feel tempted that we've got to do something? We've got to lessen the message? We've got to find some other means to try to get people to come rather than holding true and faithful to the message of who Jesus is? The glorified Jesus warns the church that his sword of truth and judgment is drawn. The world doesn't like to hear that, but it's not an opinion. It's not optional. Jesus tells us whenever we preach the word of God, it is the sword of truth that has been drawn. The glorified Jesus shall make known intentionally and decisively that he searches the minds and the hearts. And so preaching the gospel and and proclaiming the word of God is not futile. Do you think it's an empty exercise? Do you think it's passe? There are people who are saying, in every generation they've said it, but there are people who are saying, look, the way you preach the gospel, getting up there and having a worship service and going through a liturgy and then uh, pouncing on people 
by you know, challenging them with the word of God, people aren't going to listen to that anymore. People have never listened to it unless the Holy Spirit of God opens their hearts. We've always been told that preaching is foolish. It goes back to the days of the apostles. The foolishness of preaching. God has chosen what? The foolishness of preaching to save sinners. I, I don't stand here and preach before you because I like to. I am commissioned. I'm afraid not to. And I'm not here to tell you how I feel about things. I'm not here to try to garner your favor. I'm not here to try to tickle your ears and tell you jokes. We, we joke around. I enjoy a good joke. We laugh. We have fun. But when I'm in the pulpit, when we're worshiping, God comes first. And so it is not futile that Jesus searches the minds and the hearts and he does it with his word. I don't know what God's doing in your mind and heart. I'm being faithful to the word of God. I'm not the Holy Spirit. Thank God. But I believe and trust the Holy Spirit. He will take the word of God and he will direct it where it needs to go and what it needs to do. The glorified Jesus warns the church that spiritual life is the work of the Holy Spirit through the appointed means of grace. We're not here to give you self-help advice. That's not what the worship of God is for. That's not what the word of God and the preaching of the gospel is for. doesn't mean that we don't find help. But it's not here to tell you how to live a more prosperous life. It's not about moralisms, that you can be better, you can be your better self. My, my task is to challenge you to be your Christian self, to be like Christ. How do we, how do we know who Christ is? You know what Paul wrote? That we might know the truth as it is in Jesus. We study the life of Jesus. And the application of the doctrine. Part of what we're studying this morning is about Jesus glorified and ascended in heaven. And what he's doing there. And then the glorified Jesus encourages the church to keep the door of salvation, that he keeps the door of salvation open. Let me make, make, make that clear. The glorified Jesus encourages the church that he keeps the door of salvation open. Salvation is of the Lord. I can't save anyone. You ever weep, cry, just hurt, have a broken heart for someone you love because you want them to be saved and you know they're in rebellion against the Lord or they deny the Lord or they've never made profession of faith? Someone that you love. We talked about this in terms of natural affinity and those whom we are connected to and our hearts break. Well, Jesus reminds us, He keeps the door of salvation. We cannot save them. We can pray and we can witness and we can live for Christ in compassion. And we can love them as Christ loved us. Only Jesus can save them. And that's the burden that I carry. To try to be faithful to the word of God and faithful to God's means of grace. Because only Jesus can save sinners. And so the glorified Jesus shames the church for neglecting his worship and thereby excluding his presence. That's the last message uh, in the message to the churches in Revelation chapter 4, ending chapter, uh, I'm sorry, Revelation chapter 3, ending chapter 3. The glorified Jesus shames the church for neglecting his worship 
and thereby excluding his presence. You see, the presence of the Lord doesn't come on our terms. The presence of the Lord comes on his terms. We refer to that as covenant. In covenant with God, his terms. He sets the terms. He is the Lord. He is the one who is in charge. And Jesus says he will not validate and he will not attend false worship. That's heavy. There's a portion of the Westminster Confession of Faith that references keeping the gospel more or less pure. It should be every one of our burning desires that the gospel be kept more pure, more pure. And we seek the word of God to do that. So John goes on in verse 1, And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here, and I will show you things which must take place along with these things. What must take place is a reflection on necessity. What must take place is that it's necessary that Jesus mediate in heaven for us. So the vision opening chapter 4 is of the door from the heavenly holy place into the heavenly holy of holies where God's throne is central. And like a nuclear model, the identified worshipers orbit and the revealed visions are unrolled like a scroll. So this is a book of prophetic visions and symbolism with the number seven being most important and prominent because the number seven represents the perfections of God, the completeness of God. God lacks nothing. He is full and complete and self-existing into himself. There is no rivalry in the Trinity. There's no vacancy in the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit and the great mystery and wonder of God the Creator and the Savior is worshipped and adored for who He is. He is perfect. He is God. So there are seven torches of burning fire before the throne of God symbolizing the seven spirits of God's ultimate holy perfections. Seven spirits doesn't mean there's seven holy spirits. It's symbolism of the complete and perfected holiness of God. God lacks nothing. Seven local churches represented in heaven by seven golden candlesticks and seven stars representing seven angel messengers. Christ is perfecting his bride, the church. There's a seven-sealed scroll, and it's uh, being opened and unsealed by the only one who can the slain and resurrected lamb. And there is a seven-horned lamb with seven eyes representing the sevenfold fullness of the Holy Spirit in terms of the glorification of of the Lord Jesus in his uh, incarnation and in his humanity. He is glorified. And in this glorification, he mediates. He is the sacrifice and the priest in one. He's the royal priest. And he is the all-sufficient sacrifice. There are seven angel messengers with seven trumpet judgments. They're entrusted with the empowerment of the means of ministering the gospel of Jesus Christ. They trumpet forth God's word of truth. Seven thunder voices from heaven. This is God speaking through the scriptures. And the seven legends of the church's perseverance is that the world, the the flesh and the devil will not defeat the church. The church is the chosen bride of Christ, and Christ is perfecting and beautifying His church to be glorified with Him. 
And as such, there are seven legends to tell us about the church's perseverance. And then there are seven bold judgments. These seven bold judgments tell us that God is active in this world. Don't despair of the gospel. So the royal high priest is also a warrior priest. All of this is leading to the visions of the returning victorious king of kings and lord of lords and the beautifying of his bride for the marriage supper of the lamb. And that's what we rehearse and that's what we're given a foretaste of when we worship and when we take the Lord's Supper. So I hope you hear with new ears how David, the psalmist's seer, engages us. Lift up your heads, O gates. Be lifted up, O ancient doors. And the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O ye gates, and be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. It is with necessity that Christ entered the Holy of Holies in heaven there to make peace with God for us. And he opens and keeps open the door that no one can shut. And he invites us into that and through that door along with what he has revealed that we may have a foretaste and promise of what awaits us that the Apostle Paul said, I has not seen nor his ear heard the things God has in store for those who love him, but they're revealed to us by the Spirit. Can you answer who the King of glory is by the Spirit? Can you say, that is my glorious Savior, my King Priest, my Warrior, my Captain of Salvation, that is Jesus Christ. Our parting hymn this morning is hymn number 347.